production. Do you want 2023 to be the year you bring your dreams and desires into reality? As you may know, manifestation has been a big part of my practice for a long time now, and through my research and study, I have developed a manifestation course just for you. This course is broken up into six immersive audio modules with printable worksheets. I cover topics like unlocking your emotions so you can receive what you truly desire, understanding the quantum field and how to connect to it, letting go of control and resistance to set manifestation into motion, and embracing and embodying gratitude in order to bring your dreams and desires into reality. This course covers all my teachings and I feel so honoured to be able to share them with you. Manifest Your Greatness is available for purchase at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. In 2016 came the birth of a bright orange book that was displayed everywhere I looked. That book was the subtle art of not giving a fuck. And in 2023, it still fills bookshelves, airport shelves and the hands of many. Its author, Mark Manson, joins me on the podcast for a second time. Due to the New York Times' number one best-selling book success, it has now been made into a film. Mark reminds us that so much of the human experience is a conversation between loss and celebration. Many have turned to Mark for his wisdom at the interplay of philosophy, psychology and common sense. Mark is kind and wise, and his life, even though it has had all the bells and whistles from the outside, has not been exempt from pain. In the next hour, we discuss what we should actually put our attention to and give a fuck about in life. Will Smith's infamous slap and their friendship, and taking responsibility for what life brings us as hard as that can be at times getting the BMW or the swimming pool or a bigger house or sending the kids to a better school, this doesn't solve anything. It's not going to hurt anything. It's not going to make anything worse. But in terms of emotional stability, happiness, functional relationships, it doesn't make any of that okay. I'm Sarah Grimberg. And this is a life of greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Mark Manson's new film, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, is available to watch on Amazon, Google Play, YouTube and other streaming platforms. In its essence, my conversation with Mark is about embracing the hard stuff rather than pushing it away and making the most of this life we have been given. My hope is that this discussion leaves you thinking how you can be your best self in service to a better world. Welcome back, Mark. Last time you were on the podcast, we talked about the art of not giving a fuck and it was this brilliant book that's done so well. And not only has it done well, but now, and I'm so not surprised, they've made it into a film. They did. They did. Somebody was crazy enough to uh, 
<laughs> to, to hire a film crew and make a go at it. Knowing the success that you've had, and then also there's been a bit of darkness. We talked about that last time from your second book that you spoke about. But now having it as a film, how's that feel? And how did you feel when they said that they'd make it into a film? Well, it's funny because when we did the film deal, one of the first things my agent told me was she said, 99% of these things never get made. So don't, <laughs> you know, don't change your plans, basically. So when we did the contract, I was just kind of like, okay, well, this is cool if it somehow happens in some universe, but I'm going to get on with the other things that I'm working on. It was like a year or two later that they called me and they're like, hey, we got financed. We're doing this. And I still like didn't completely know what that meant just because I have no experience in the film world. Yes. I was like, cool, sure, all right, let's do it. Looking back, I think it was good for the production process, the creative process to literally have zero expectations. So did you not give a fuck? (laughs) I guess you could say that. (laughs) Obviously being in the personal development world, I thought it was a really nice thing that they've made a film out of a self-development, personal development book as well. I thought Mm. it's good to see that we're moving in that direction and that this space has become so big, which it has been for a while, but now I think it's just grown and especially COVID probably helped with that, that they've actually used your book as like a catalyst to make this amazing film and it's not just the horror movies and the romance rom-coms and all those kind of books that they're turning into films. I appreciated that, which I think is really good. I think you've been the step forward for us all, Mark. I hope so. Let's hope it let's hope it goes well. <laughs> Cuz I watched the film yesterday and it's brilliant. It's so good and everyone's got to watch it. What I love as well, it's the same name, so The Art of Not Giving a Fuck. So that's good. You did well with that. They've put you on this big table with all this stuff around you and I was thinking to myself, who comes up with that? <laughs> That's a great question. I was kind of wondering the same thing. So a lot of the visual aspect of the movie, the movie, I would call it kind of maximalist in that it is constantly hitting you with visual stimulation. Yes. And I think the idea behind that, so the director was a Kiwi guy named Nathan Price. And he and I had a lot of conversations about style and tone and aesthetic And one of the ideas that he kind of brought to it is in some ways, it's the first self-help book in the social media age of we are all bombarded with stimulation all the time. And so how do we sort through that? How do we figure out what's worth paying attention to and what's not? And I think his idea coming into it was, well, we should make it almost visually overloading the viewer to kind of replicate this sense of sifting through just this massive stimulation that's happening all the time. So the set was actually, I mean, they had stuff everywhere. The first day I got the set, my first reaction was, this is a little much, guys. Let's bring it down on notch, maybe. So I actually had them remove a handful of things. It struck a really cool aesthetic, and I think it does capture that 
sense of controlled chaos that yes. is our our daily experience on our phones. Absolutely. And I also like the fact that you were in it because a lot of the time they'll take a book, but the person that has written it or is almost even the main character, they're not even in it. It's much better when the person who has created this thing is actually there as the storyteller, which you are. Was that important for you? It's funny because they asked me very early on, hey, we think a lot of this should kind of be built around interviewing you. And it's funny because at, at that point, I had done, as you know, this book just keeps going and going and going yeah. and going. It's like Michael Myers from Halloween, like nothing can kill it. And <laughs> it's, it's so true. Can I tell you, I just so, came home from Bali because it's Australian summer holidays, so everyone's just gone back. The airport is like the mecca of bookshops that you go to. It's kind of the only time I go to a bookshop. Now everyone sends me their books and I'm, I always love seeing the books. And on the best-selling list is... The Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which has been there probably for the last 20 holidays I have been on over the years. As you said, <laughs> that book is not moving from that bestseller list, even though didn't it come out in like 2016 or something? 16, yeah. Is that Barefoot Investor guy still there too? Yeah, yes. He's, it's so funny you say that. Someone mentioned that before. That Barefoot Investor guy is still there. He also, he keeps on keeping on that man. Yeah, he's like Jason from Friday the 13th. It's funny. I remember the first time I did like a press tour in Australia, I was with my publicist at one of the bookshops. I think this was right after the book came out. So I was number two and then the Barefoot Investor guy was number one. And I remember even then she was like, she was like, yeah, this book has been around for like eight years. It's always number one. I don't get it. Everybody must have a copy by now. And it's funny because I've gone back to Australia for like three or four press tours in the last six years. And every time I go down there, he's still on the list. I'm like, damn, whoever this guy is, man, you're you're killing it. Good and can I you. tell you, he actually is like <laughs> such a nice guy. Yeah. He lives in the country. He's so sweet. He's, he's just a very simple guy. And it's really nice, like you, to see the success that this book has had. It's pretty amazing. But I'd love to start talking again. I know we did cover some of this last time, but your childhood is spoken about a lot in this film, which is great because I am a true believer that that's where everything begins and our subconscious mind hits all our belief systems and all the events that happen. And I want you to tell us a bit about you grew up in Texas and I know you described that as not being the the mecca of everything in this world, unfortunately, and you found it quite boring. But can you tell us a bit about that time and then also, you know, what happened when you're at school, which changed your life? Sure. Um, so I, I grew up in, in Texas in a small town. It used to be outside of Austin, but now Austin has grown so much it's kind of consumed the town I grew up in and it's just become an extension of it. But, uh, you know, very conservative, quiet, Southern U.S. town. And I was a very artistic kid. I was a very intellectual kid. The joke I usually make is where I grew up, everything was, was about football and Jesus in that order. And I didn't really care for either of them. And so I was just, I don't know, I felt like a little bit of an outcast. And it's one of those things that when you're living through it, you hate it, but then you get 10, 20 years 
ahead of it and you realize like how much of a gift it was. Yeah. My childhood, it was very perfect on paper. So if you like wrote out a CV of <laughs> my family when I was a kid, it looked great. You know, it was like upper middle class. The dad had his own business, went to nice schools, had a swimming pool in the backyard, played on the soccer team, went to church every Sunday. Parents volunteered in the community. Everything on paper was very kind of idyllic, but it was interesting because having, so this is where I get to the gift, having all that, those external markers of success, of a good family, all the things the in the US we call it the American dream. Yeah. Growing up with that and growing up in a house that we had that and everybody was pretty miserable and none of our relationships were functional with each other. It taught a lesson very early on that, this doesn't solve anything. Getting the BMW or the swimming pool or a bigger house or sending the kids to a better school, this doesn't solve anything. Mm. It doesn't hurt. Nobody's going to complain about having a swimming pool. It's not going to hurt anything. It's not going to make anything worse. But in terms of just emotional stability, happiness, functional relationships, it, it doesn't make any of that okay. And so I became a rebellious and rambunctious kid and teenager. I lashed out. I was angry a lot and I didn't know why. I was too young to understand why. And so I lashed out a lot in a lot of different ways and I, and I rebelled pretty ferociously. That eventually led me into dealing drugs at school. You know, and of course, being stupid and 13, you don't realize how easily you get caught yeah. <laughs> doing things like that. So, <laughs> so, so my drug trafficking career <laughs> lasted a whole like two months, probably made me about $60. Next thing I know, I'm in the principal's office, the police are there, I'm in handcuffs. It was a reality check. I think because I grew up in such kind of a conventionally privileged lifestyle, I had this ignorance. I would break rules. I would push boundaries. I would piss off teachers and adults. And I think I felt like immune yes. to any actual consequences. Okay, yeah, maybe you put me in detention or my parents ground me or take away my Nintendo or something. But like, nothing's actually going to happen. And that was kind of the first moment in my life. It's like, no, 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 there are consequences yeah. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and it's time It's time you figure out how to deal with them. <laughs> it's funny that sense of entitlement that you do see in children who come from a very privileged background. And I think there is a point in everyone's life if they have grown up entitled where they're hit so hard mm. with, I'm sorry, doesn't matter how rich you are, but this is not going to open every single door for you. And regardless of that, shit still happens in your life that you'll need to learn to deal with. But it was a full-on time for you because after that, your parents made you change school and you couldn't speak to any of your friends anymore. And then two months later, they told you that they were splitting up, which is very sad for any child to go through. Then you talk about obviously going into a really dark place and I wonder for you, when you look back at that time, obviously it was so long ago, and you see now what you've achieved, what do you think that you learned from that? And can you believe that you've come from there to now making a film and having that whole bit in the film? It's bizarre. It's, it's absolutely bizarre. I mean, 
It's funny. So I got kicked out of the school district and my parents, they had money. So they put me into a, a Christian private school and academically it was very good, but it was very conservative, et cetera, et cetera. But it was small. It kind of put me in this tight knit high school community and everybody kind of keeps in touch. Everybody's still friends with at least one person who knows somebody mm. else who knows somebody else. And even the teachers, there's still a pretty tight network. And it's it's been interesting. A couple of my teachers have reached out over the past couple of years. And they actually told me, like, I was not a good student. But they told me, they're like, I'm not surprised. <laughs> actually, I remember my history teacher when I was like 16, he sent me a message on Facebook. And he was like, you are a nightmare to teach, but I'm not surprised at all by any of the success. And I think it's just one of the blessings of going through all of that is that I think it made me comfortable with doing things that nobody else understood or approved of. I think everybody has this very inherent fear of, well, I don't want to do anything that other people think is weird. And I got thrust into situation after situation where I almost, I don't want to say didn't have a choice, but like, I feel like I just got desensitized to that at a pretty young age. And so I've, as an adult, I recognize that I seem to be a lot more comfortable. You know, you're often in a room and there's something everybody's thinking, but nobody wants to say it because they're going to look like an asshole. I think from a very young age, I just got very comfortable being the guy who said it. And, and I think when you're a kid and you're in school, you get punished for being the person who says it. But when you're an adult, you get rewarded for being the person who says mm. it. And I think a lot of my career is really just being like, I'm the guy in the self-help room who raises his hand and says, hey, maybe that positivity advice isn't actually helping people. That's a thing that millions of people were thinking, but nobody actually came out and wrote a book and said it. And I see a lot of my career is just an extension of that. It's funny you bring that up because I wanted to talk about something in the film, which is delusional positivity that you mention, And you say that life will always suck a bit. And it reminded me a bit of that whole Buddhist theory about life as suffering. But if you just take the term in isolation, it sounds horrific. What do you mean life is suffering? That's just depressing view of life. But it's the understanding that life will have suffering in it and it's the way that we overcome these kind of challenges and the way that we view them. But I want to talk about that idea of delusional positivity and your understanding of that. I think positivity or having a positive mindset is, it's a very useful tool. If you're going through a hard time in your life, you lost a job or just went through a breakup or whatever, Adopting a positive mindset, reminding yourself what you're grateful for, looking for the silver lining, looking for potential lessons and and what just happened. I think that's a very, very useful tool to kind of get through any sort of challenge. The problem is, is that I think at some point, there's a certain threshold where people forget that it's a tool and they just adopt it as a a way of being. Mm. Everything is awesome all the time. And meanwhile, the house is on fire, the kid is drowning in the bathtub, and you're like, no, everything's great. You know, it's this is fine. I think there's a fine line between using positivity as a helpful tool to get through struggles and being compulsively positive as a way to avoid dealing with the challenges. It's that latter part that messes people up. 
it causes more problems in the long run. You spoke about a lot of this in your second book about how it was this really full-on thing in the sense of you hit your peak at 31, even though you haven't because you're older now and you, you brought out a film. Um, so the peak has definitely <laughs> not been hit. But at the time you fell into this depression because you were like, wow, I have achieved so much and I'm so young and now what? And I wonder for you, how did you move through that time? Because I'm assuming you didn't use any delusional positivity. How did you get to then pick yourself up and be here now with this film? It's ironic. So whenever I talk about this stuff, it's always ironic because it's I talk about the struggles or the issues that I've gone through since the book blew up. And inevitably, all of the issues and problems that I talk about are actually in the fucking book itself. And so it's like, it's like, take your own advice, Mark. Haven't you been paying attention? So the funny thing is, is that I've got a concept in the book called Manson's Law of Avoidance. And it talks about how anything that threatens your identity, whether positive or negative, you will resist and you will emotionally react to, to protect yourself. Yeah. And I think having a book that is such an astronomical success, such a life-changing success that happens so quickly, I think it definitely triggered a lot of those defense mechanisms to like kind of protect my own identity. And so I went through a period of, oh my God, there's an imposter syndrome period of what did I do to deserve this? Yes. Then there's another period which I think is the last time I talked to you, which is, my God, what am I going to do next? Nothing I ever do is going to be like this. I've kind of come out on another side of that. I think I've actually finally reached a healthy place, which is simply being grateful for it. It's such a gift. It's a gift that keeps giving. In many ways, it's liberated me Mm. to experiment. I don't know, maybe this sounds very banal, but it was a huge mindset shift for me to go to from oh my God, people love this book so much. I have to figure out how to do a thing that they're going to love as much as that one, which felt very confining, very stressful, very insecure, Mm -hmm. very please like me, please like me. And this shift to a new mindset, which I'm kind of at now, which is no, this... So I did the thing everybody loves. That actually frees me to do whatever the fuck I want now. And that's a very liberating thing. And as a a creative person, that's exactly where you want to be. That's where you want to live. Getting there mentally, it took four or five years. Just mentally adjust to the new reality and yes. be like, no, 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 dude, this is this is a liberating thing. You don't have to worry. You know, if the next book comes out and it bombs, who cares? So it's it's been an interesting process. And I have to say, I've been very open about this process. It's been interesting. I always feel weird talking about this on podcasts because I feel like nobody wants to hear, oh, boo-hoo, I sold 15 million books and now I'm stressed out. That's not a very relatable problem. It's funny how many people I meet privately or I'll go to an event and talk about this and how many people come up to me and they're like, I sold my startup last year for seven figures and ever since it's been the worst year of my life. Really? I don't know what to do. I feel so lost. People in other fields, musicians who have their first hit song, it's actually like the most stressful and anxiety inducing event of their entire life. You know, it's, there's like this weird emotional fallout that comes with sudden and drastic success. It doesn't really get talked about. It doesn't really get investigated. Having now been through it, it also makes me sympathize a lot more with young 
celebrities, mm. people like Justin Bieber or Amy Winehouse, or these people who get famous in their teens. If I hadn't been in my 30s and had a solid foundation under me and solid relationships in my life, I can't even imagine the dumb shit I would have done. Oh. I, I have a new level of sympathy for people like that. So anyway. I was talking the other day with someone about that whole, you know, that that mm-hmm. myth that all the artists, you Kurt Cobain and Jeff Buckley, they all die, all these amazing, yeah. and I think even maybe Amy Winehouse, they were all 27 when they died. And at the pinnacle of their career, or it's made me think a lot because of Taylor Hawkins from Foo Fighters that died. It's an interesting thing, fame, and what it does to you, and especially you mentioned Justin Bieber when you're young and you get into the grips of it and you don't know that reality and you talk about entitled. I mean, these people, and it's not their fault, they have yes people around them the whole time yeah, and they just grow up in this kind of bubble which ends up a lot of the time crashing down. And I think it's really interesting to hear from people like yourself that it's not this you get to the pinnacle of your career or maybe it's not even the pinnacle, you just become really famous and do cool stuff. It's not cool the whole time. There's a lot of stresses. There's a lot of mental anguish that comes with things. Going back to what we were first talking about, just because you have the shiny things around you and you're rubbing shoulders with people that are known doesn't mean life's peachy. It's such a hard thing to communicate because it is very nuanced. Obviously, I wouldn't trade anything. Obviously, my life is much better now than it was yes. <laughs> the day before the book came out. It's not like I'd go back. Again, this is another thing I talk about in the book. So what the fuck, Mark? You should have seen it coming. But one of the things I talk about in the book and in the film is how our brain kind of plays this magic trick on us over and over again of like, if you just get X, then you'll be happy. Mm. If you just achieve Y, then you'll be happy. And sure enough, I got my X and Y and and then spent two years wondering why the hell I wasn't happy. <laughs> and so it's like, I, even though I know the magic trick, it still worked on me. And I think particularly when it comes to this conversation of intense fame or financial success, it's a cliche of, yeah, money doesn't make you happy or fame doesn't make you happy. But it's actually, it's much more complicated than that. It's not that it doesn't make you happy. Your life definitely does get better in many dimensions. It's just that there is kind of a proportional increase in stresses and anxieties that nobody on the outside can see or nobody who has, has not lived through that can see nor sympathize with. Mm. So it's it's a strange experience in that regard. You know, one thing my dad says a lot that I think is very wise is he says that money can't buy happiness, but it can buy away unhappiness. And I would rephrase that as money doesn't buy happiness, but it can buy comforts. And Mm. so I think a lot of people look at like, well, this person is rich and famous. They've got a lot of comforts in their life. They've got a big house and a nice car and fly business class when they go on holiday. And yeah, that's nice. But comfort's not the same thing as happiness. It's comfort is nice. Stability is really nice, but it doesn't give meaning. It doesn't give significance. It doesn't fill you with purpose. It's interesting because I think sometimes people think Mark wrote the book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. He doesn't care about anything. (laughs) And and that's completely not true because as the movie and the book, it's like what to put your attention on caring about rather than caring about everything. But 
I can tell from talking to you that you do do a lot of inner work because you've mm. triumphed over a lot of different lows in your life. And I am the strong believer that good things happen to good people. So you're obviously projecting out a good vibe <laughs> to have all this stuff happen to you. Do you see a psychologist? Do you do personal development things? You said you changed your mindset recently to refocus on something else. What do you Mm do? Well, it's funny because a lot of my job is doing personal development work, right? So when I sit down, I sit down each month and I spend about a day just coming up with email newsletters, social media posts, things like that. And so when I do that, that's the first question I'm asking myself is what are the big realizations I've had in the last month? What are the big issues that I'm struggling with right now? What do I need to hear? That's always been my like number one prompt for coming up with new material and content. It's like, what what am I struggling with? In a sense, that's like a very therapeutic practice. I'm very fortunate in that, again, being in my line of work, some of my best friends, including my wife, are psychologists, coaches, therapists. I've got a great network of people that if I'm really struggling with something or something's not going well, I can sit down and have a very deep and personal conversation with them. And and I've just been doing this a long time. So I've kind of developed a sense of, okay, you're, you're probably being a little irrational and insecure right now. Maybe back off, take a week off just like learning myself over the years. Mm. I don't have like a formal practice that I do consistently, but again, it's just because I've kind of built my life to foster this practice. There's something interesting that you bring up in the movie, which is finding out that you're wrong can make you a better person. And I wonder, how has that played out in your life? Uh, I'm never wrong. I'm the exception. (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Everything I say is perfect. Well, it's interesting for me because a lot of the times if I get something wrong, it's very public. And so a lot of times when I'm corrected very publicly or I'm corrected by readers, I've had things pointed out to me. There's kind of two sides of this. One is just more on a factual side. I've written about research and studies and actual yeah. psychologists have emailed me and said, well, I'm actually very familiar with this this area of research and that's not the best study. This one's better. You should look into yes. this. And so got to go back, edit that article, Yeah, look at the new research. So that happens a decent amount. When I was starting out, say 10 years ago, when I was younger and trying to get my name out there. I, I'll just put it this way. I was a little bit more aggressive in terms of the humor and maybe being a little bit offensive and raunchy. I'd say there's probably been half a dozen times over the last 10 or 12 years that somebody has emailed me and said, I get why you wrote this joke. I get why you think it's funny, but like, have you thought about this? Mm. You know, and then, I mean, a lot of times I get those emails and they're just being, I think they're just being hypersensitive and it's like, yes. it's a joke, get over it. But I'd say one out of 50 times, one out of a hundred times, uh, an email has come through and I'm like, mm, 
shit, that's a really good point. Yeah. And so I go back, I edit it. But yeah, it's just I I do I changed my mind on on a lot of things. I actually did an article two years ago, and it was the the title of the article was four things I've changed my mind about in the last ten years. I thought it was a really good practice for my longtime readers just to make make it really clear. There are some things I wrote eight years ago I don't one hundred percent stand behind anymore. I've changed my perspective on it. It's interesting being in the spotlight and having those things come to you because I I had a couple of listeners writing to me about the way that I talked about something and I thought to myself, you know what? Mm. They actually got a really good point and Mm. hands up, I wasn't saying it in the right way. You know how terms change over the years and sometimes when you're not not up with the terms, you kind of make that mistake because it's always been spoken about in a certain way and you're like, I need to change my language now which is absolutely fine. So you are grateful that that's been pointed out. We can't always be right about everything. I know that you're good mates with Will Smith and then that whole thing happened in at the Academy Awards. Yep. That was obviously a very public thing. I mean, did that change anything between you and him or it was just, well, that's his thing and he's got to deal with that? Well, it didn't change anything. I came out and was pretty supportive of him. And he was actually very grateful for that. I didn't follow it super closely, but I got the sense that maybe like not everybody in his in his life stood up for him. Yes. But I wrote an article after that happened because I got a lot of e- readers emailing me saying, how could you work with this guy? I thought you said he was a great guy. Oh my God, I don't trust you, blah, blah, blah. First of all, I didn't grab his hand and slap Chris Rock no. with it. And you're like, I probably you know? wasn't even invited to the Academy Awards, but hopefully with my uh, new film, I might yeah, be. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't, I wasn't even within 100 miles. Yeah. I wrote an article about this because I, it kind of struck a nerve with me, not the slap, but yeah. people's response to the slap. And I said, look, like, in case you haven't been paying attention, the whole point of my work, my entire career is that everybody is fucked up Mm. and has issues, every single person. And the way we grow, and not just grow ourselves, but also grow in our relationships and understanding of other people, is by being willing to face those fucked up things and those issues. And and if you look at all the stories that I've shared from my own life, Mm. either awful things happening to me or me being a total idiot, or an asshole and screwing something up. And that's that's by design because it's, I believe very strongly that people need to know that they're not weird for screwing up, that yes. they're not weird for making mistakes or having terrible things happen in their lives. Um, and so here you have one of the most famous people on the planet, clearly got triggered by something, something hit a nerve and and he reacted very rationally and emotionally in the moment. And we've all been there. We've all had that happen. We've all done it. And I just, I also have this weird pet peeve. Like I have never understood why people expect celebrities to be perfect. The assumption that because a guy like shoots a basketball well, that he's going to be a great father, a great community leader, a great businessman, a great, have great political ideas. It's completely irrational. These are very normal human beings. They do one thing. They're like world-class at one thing. And then outside of that one thing, they're just 
completely normal human beings like the rest of us. I wrote a pretty extensive piece kind of digging into all that stuff. Look, we all fuck up. And by the way, if you read the book that Will and I did, there's an entire chapter about violence and his history of violence, about him growing up around violence, his struggles and dealing with it when he was younger. This isn't coming out of left field. If you've been paying attention and you don't have him on a pedestal, but see him as a human, it's not that shocking, maybe. And on top of that, I've been around him enough to just see that's not him. That's the worst side of him. He is a great guy mm -hmm. and he does amazing things for so many people that you never hear about. It never gets publicized. Honestly, my biggest feeling about it is I just feel bad for him because it's one of the biggest moments of his life. He went 30 years without stepping in it. He's been famous for 30 years and he never screwed up once. And maybe this is why this is such a big deal because he was so super clean and it went yeah. from it's such an extreme rather than he was Charlie Sheen and then this happened and it's like, ugh, Charlie <laughs> Sheen. Do you know what I mean? And it wouldn't have even, it would have been five seconds worth of newsworthy because no one would expect yeah. anything less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a shame. It's a shame. It's almost ironic. It's almost like if he had had a few scandals over the past 30 years. Yes, <laughs> the fall wouldn't have been as great. Yeah, they wouldn't have cared. <laughs> Hilarious. In the film, and it's also in the book, you go back to the childhood at the end and you talk about that friend of yours that ended up drowning. And I'd obviously read that in the book and it was a really pivotal moment. But what I think struck me, and I thought it was really beautiful, and I, from knowing you, I know it definitely wasn't put on, is that you shed some tears at the end. It just made me think about grief and loss, and that was, I'm assuming, maybe 20 years ago, if not longer. How do you deal with that in your everyday life? And, and I don't know if you've lost anyone else close to you since, but it's interesting when grief still pokes its head through. You're right. I My friend Josh passed away when I was 19 and I'm 38 now. And I, I can honestly say I haven't really thought about him other than like in passing yes. in years. So Nathan, the director, he somehow got, got some info about him, did a bunch of research, got online, dug really deep and found like old pictures of him online that family members had posted and pictures that I hadn't seen from back around the time we were friends. And the day we were going to film that scene, he kind of put together this little folder of like old pictures of Josh and some things that he had like an obituary page online. Like one of his family members set it up. It was like things that his friends and family had written on this obituary page. And he showed it to me. And it was, it was one of those moments where it's like, damn, I, whoa, I have not thought about this in a while. And it, it really got me kind of feeling a little bit sad and reminiscing a little bit. And then when we started shooting that scene, he didn't go straight into, we did three full days of interviews. We shot six to eight hours of, of interviews, three days straight. So probably 20, 25 hours of interviews. And Basically, what we did is we would kind of go section by section in the book, and he would just ask me questions, kind of like what you're doing, conversationally, to get me talking about the book's topics so that it felt very natural and mm. organic. 
So it was a very slow and sometimes tedious process. So when we got to the Josh section, he didn't go straight into the story in the book. He actually just started asking me how I met him and what my favorite memories of him were and what we used to do that first summer break after uni and just like really got me reminiscing and nostalgic about my friendship with him. And then he went into the story about his dad. And so he kind of like just buttered me up and got yes. me all primed, got me reminiscing about this old friend who I hadn't thought about in years and probably spent about good 20, 30 minutes thinking about him and smiling and laughing and telling him stories. And then we go into how he died. And then it hit me like with a whole, like a weight that I guess I hadn't really felt in a lot of years. And yeah, I started tearing up and it kind of shocked me. I was sitting there. I was like, holy shit, I'm crying. <laughs> I'm like, I'm crying in my own movie. <laughs> Fuck. Like, I did not see this coming. I reckon it takes a bit to get Mark Manson to cry. Like, I was shocked, even though, you know, I've seen a lot of people and talked to a lot of people who cry, but... I don't know. I just felt like you telling me that story makes complete sense because I thought, oh, I don't think that's an easy thing to do. <laughs> My mom was surprised. My mom was like, I don't remember the last time I saw you cry. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty rough. I mean, like I said, total credit to him. And it was funny. As soon as we cut from that scene, I, I told her, I was like, do not make me do that again. <laughs> that is the only shot you're getting. <laughs> Your director's like a psychologist. What's the best advice that you have ever been given? Oof. So I, I have a few favorite lines, or I guess most impactful single piece of advice. One of my favorite quotes ever is from David Foster Wallace. He said, you'll stop worrying what people think about you when you realize how seldom they do. And <laughs> it sounds so harsh, and sad on the surface, but it's actually such a liberating thing because everybody's so busy worrying about how they think other people are perceiving them yeah. that they're too busy to actually perceive other people. Yeah. And, you know, I dealt with a lot of social anxiety when I was young and I remember like going and standing in a room at a party and just being kind of petrified to say anything or do anything. It made me look back and realize that like, 80% of the people in the room were standing there with the same fear, worrying about the same things instead of just interacting. So as somebody who, who dealt with a lot of social anxiety early in his life, that was a very liberating thought. In terms of actual advice that I got that I think is the best I ever got, I got to give my dad a shout out again. Very early in my career, when I had first started blogging, I'd written like a very long article about, it was a concept that I kind of made up. It was one of the first times that like I kind of invented a concept yes. that I was very, really proud of and I thought it was useful for people. And I wrote up this huge article about it. My blog was still pretty small at the time and I thought it was great and I was really proud of it. And then a week later, a really prominent blogger in my space wrote an article basically saying the same thing. And it was really clear that he had basically just copied my idea. Mm -hmm. But his audience was 100 times bigger than mine at the time. So I didn't really feel like there was anything I could do. And it was just very upsetting. I was broke at the time. I wasn't living on a friend's couch. I had been working for 
almost a year and nothing seemed to be working. And I remember I got on the phone with my dad and was kind of talking to him about it. And he told me, he said, you know, Mark, there's two types of people in this world. He said, the first type are people who are constantly looking for golden eggs and trying to figure out how to take golden eggs, collect as many golden eggs as possible. And he said, the second type are people who figure out how to be the goose that lays the golden egg. And he said, if you figure out how to be the goose, you'll never worry about somebody coming and taking an egg from you. Hmm. And it was at the time it was very reassuring. It kind of gave me the courage to keep going forward. But I, I think it just, you know, it's probably been 10, 12 years now. There's so much wisdom in that mindset. A lot of people call it an abundance mindset yeah. or abundance mentality, but just this idea that it's not yours. If you're confident in your ability to generate value in your own life, you'll never worry about somebody taking something from you. Yes. You know? I think that is critical and stop looking over your shoulder kind of thing and focus forward. What's the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? <laughs> the thing that immediately comes to mind is commitment. I was, mm. I'd say it took a good 15 years for me to finally get over my commitment phobia. And it wasn't just relationships. I mean, it was anything. I couldn't even, I couldn't even pick a damn city to live in for most of my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> it's too intimate. It's too intimate. I can't, I can't sign a, a, a lease that's more than six months. It's too intimate. Do you have a favorite phrase or saying, I do say to very spiritual people, mantra or prayer? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Okay, so this actually came up in, in one of the other interviews I did today yeah. is a question that I actually ask myself often. Yes. And I didn't really realize that I ask it often until this other conversations came up. I think it's really healthy to just periodically ask yourself, what if I'm the asshole? And whenever you're in kind of like a complicated situation or there's some conflict going on, I think our default setting is to see all the, all the ways everybody else around us is wrong or yeah. screwing us over or messing things up. And I find it's just a good practice as a mental exercise to be like, okay, what if I'm the asshole? What if I'm the one who's messing everything up and is screwing everybody over? What would be true if that were the case? And I think that's um, it's a very important exercise to keep yourself humble, keep perspective. And also, if it turns out you were being the asshole, turn around and apologize. Yes. What is a life of greatness to you? I think a life of greatness is just a life of minimal regret. Mark Manson, thank you so much for speaking to me again on the podcast. Your film, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, is a must-watch, and I'm very proud of you for doing all these uh, amazing things. The sky's the limit. Yeah, until next time. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. 
and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.